Welcome to Heaven Sent and Bent on TalkZone.com, a place to talk about the experiences that we call life. We'll share the sorrow and the joy that makes this earthy existence real and makes us who we are. Now, here's your host, Renee Steelman. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me today. I think you are going to be absolutely mesmerized by my show today. And it is definitely not because of me. It is because of my wonderful guests that I have planned. Thank you for joining me on Heaven Sent and Bent this morning. I am Renee Steelman, your host. And you are obviously tuned in to TalkZone.com. The Heaven Sent and Bent channel can be found on the New Horizons section of my page. So, um, and be sure and download the TalkZone.com app so that you can listen to the show live anywhere that you and your smartphone or your tablet or whatever happen to be. Um, and so, because you are really going to, um, I hope that you are going to, you know, learn and be challenged. And be a better person by listening to my show weekly. And our, the show is definitely, uh, rebroadcast if you do happen to miss it. I always post the show on my blog, which you can find at www.heavenandnot.com. But it's fun to listen live and, um, and you will have an opportunity to actually call in and ask questions if you're listening live. So why wouldn't you want to do that? So, but let's get started today because I have the most amazing gift today. Matt and Nancy Brown just fell into my lap and Matt specifically is a, uh, well, he's just about ready to retire, but he's been in law enforcement for, you know, many, many years. And he is not only a uh, police officer, but he is a parent of a child with autism. And the two of them have melted together. And even though he's just about ready to retire, uh, his background and his his environment and everything has kind of fallen into place for him to begin a new career. And I'm going to let Matt tell you all about that. So I'm not going to jibber jabber any longer. Let's bring Matt on. Matt, how are you this morning? I'm great, Renee. How are you? Thanks for having me. I am so pleased to have you and your wife as my guests today. And let me start out by asking a quick question. Even though you are out there on the East Coast, you do not sound like you're from Maine. I'm not. No, uh, we're both from Washington, D.C. Um, ah, okay. We're, we're, we're D.C. natives, and we grew up in Maryland um, and went to school down in Richmond, Virginia. But then in 1998, I transferred up to the Portland Maine Field Office of the U.S. Probation Office. And uh, when our son was two months old, uh, back in 98, so we're trying to be real Mainers, but it's, um, you know, it's a long process. So we're still in the application <laughs> phase. <laughs> Do you like lobster? I mean, is that part of part of the transition phase? You have to learn to love lobster. Well, no, you can. There's all kinds of other stuff. You know, okay. crabs and scallops and shrimp and everything else. So I'm okay. not I'm not that crazy about lobster, but um, there's all kinds of good seafood to eat here. It's a beautiful place to live. I, I don't I don't regret the decision whatsoever. 
Oh, that's excellent. I know I, I've never really had that much of a desire to visit that part. I mean, my husband and I go to New York all the time, but I have a grandson living with me now who is uh, fixated on lighthouses. And so we're going to be doing a, the Oregon Washington uh, lighthouses, but I can see that there might be some trips to Maine to uh, get in some more East Coast lighthouses in our future. That we have an unbelievable amount of lighthouses. The very first one that was commissioned by George Washington is here in Portland called Portland Head Light, and there's dozens and dozens of them. So it is definitely oh, the place so- to go if you like lighthouses. Well, and you know, it's so funny because, um, you know, Portland, Oregon, Portland, Maine, I remember when I was in the military, I was applying for uh, to come home on leave. And so the person in the office was like, all right, where are you going? And I said, Portland. And they're like, OK. And then I'm walking out with my ticket and I go, oh, yeah, no, not Portland, Maine. It's Portland, Oregon. And they're like, whoa, good thing you told us that. And then it's so funny because, you know, I also, uh, I mean, I live across the river from Portland and Vancouver. So I'm always having to tell people, not Vancouver, Canada, it's Vancouver, Washington. So between Portland and Vancouver, I just want to tell people I live in, I don't know, (laughs) you know, Smallville, USA or something. I don't know. Actually, my brother lives in Smallville, so that doesn't work either. Anyway, so, well, Matt, let's get started right away because, um, just give us a little insight to, you know, the progression of your of your career and then how your son kind of moved you to go in the direction that you're going right now. Sure. Well, I, I've been in law enforcement now for 26 years. As you mentioned, I'm, I'm retiring at the end of this week and transitioning to another role where I'll be training police officers on mental illness and developmental disabilities. But I didn't know anything about autism whatsoever until uh, our son Matthew was born and he was diagnosed. Um, He was born premature. He was one of twins. One of the twins died during the pregnancy, and he almost died as well. Um, Mm. But, uh, in fact, we were told one night when we were in the hospital that we were going to lose him, and thank God that didn't happen. Um, But he was born premature, and he was two months old, and we found ourselves up here in Portland, Maine, not knowing a soul and having a a baby that just screamed and screamed and screamed. And I think a lot of other parents might have had this experience where he was only calm if he was in motion. So we had to be rocking all the time. You know, there's that comfort in kind of that rocking motion. But if he was still, he was just screaming bloody murder. And, you know, he was missing his milestones in terms of speech and walking and things like that. And thanks to my wife, Nancy, and her persistence that something was wrong and that we needed to get to the bottom of it, um, you know, he was diagnosed and he was able to get into a, de- a special developmental preschool in Portland where he got a credible array of services, speech therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy, and we did all kinds of stuff at home. And we had people come into the house to help us to kind of keep him connected and work on that whole piece. And now he's a 17, almost 18-year-old young man um, who's looking at colleges, which is an overall Wow. It's an overwhelming thing. I, I was, I tell people, you know, we were taking a tour of a college and walking with him, and I'm just looking at him, and I'm thinking of the days when we thought we were going to lose him that one particular day, and knowing Aww. the journey that we've been on, I had to keep kind of turning my back because I was kind of losing my composure just thinking about how great yeah. that he's there. Now I have a lot of worries about that because he still has, even as a quote unquote high functioning individual, he still has a lot of social communication challenges that I think will make college more difficult than it might ordinarily be. But on the whole, just so grateful for where we are. And that's kind of how I got to a place early on that I wanted to figure out some way that I could be a part of the autism community and give back. 
um, the Autism Society of Maine, which is a wonderful, unbelievable organization here in the state of Maine, serving families with very little resources but doing incredible work. They were looking to put together a program to train police. They were recognizing that more and more people on the spectrum were having contact with the police. They were wandering and drowning, all the all the things that we know about autism that can be risk factors. And I thought to myself, well, I'm a law enforcement officer and I'm a parent. This would be a perfect way for me to, to give back. So um, I had the good fortune of meeting a gentleman named Dennis DeBot from Florida who had been doing this work. And I uh, developed a training program after meeting with him here. We got it approved by the state of Maine Criminal Justice Academy, and I've been doing that training ever since. For the first, you know, dozen or so years, I did it as an information specialist through the Autism Society of Maine, and also as a volunteer with NAMI, National Alliance on Mental Illness, mm-hmm. as part of their crisis intervention training. And now, I train. I'm also an instructor at the State Police Academy. So every new police officer that is licensed in the state of Maine ha- gets exposed to this training, and there's not. I don't know of any other state where every officer gets that going through the academy. I'm not sure oh if there is gosh. one. I'm not aware of it. There might be a, a, a few, but I can tell you that there's not many. So every officer coming through gets it. Um, and, you know, I've trained, I don't know, close to 6,000 police officers wow. responders in Maine and, and some other states. But in the last couple of years, um, as I knew I was transitioning closer to retirement, my wife and I got together to form autism safety education and training because we were getting more requests from out of state. And it was clear to me that there's a huge um, need in other places where there's no training at all. Uh, and so I've been taking it out of state. We've been to Idaho, I think Idaho. I've been to New Brunswick, Canada, um, New Jersey, several other states doing the training. We've also it's also expanded to include firefighters, dispatchers, other first responders, um, and we've lately been doing a lot of work in the schools as well. We, one of the things that I recognized is that schools uh, don't think a lot in general about the safety piece with autism. You know, mm-hmm. they're, fi- they're focused on the instructional piece and things like that and maybe some behavioral management things, but, you know, kids wander from schools. Uh, mm-hmm. A third of the wandering incidents occur at schools, not at home. But a lot, not a lot of people know that. Uh, 91% of the individuals with autism that wander, they drown and die, they drown. Um, so when these situations come up, they're critical. And what I was finding is that schools didn't have plans in place to address if a student with autism wandered, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Have you talked to your local first responders about, you know, uh, the kids and what, where the hazards are around your school, the lakes, the ponds, the rivers, railroad tracks, things like that. Um, so that's kind of a little thumbnail sketch of how things kind of got rolling and how it's how it's kind of progressed since we started. And, you know, as you're speaking and you're talking, I mean, my mind is going 100 miles an hour because everything that you mentioned, I feel like there's like a club. The the parents of the children that that have these these this activity we all recognize it we all i mean like as you're talking about the 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 uh, draw to water you know i'm shaking my head yeah yeah i remember thinking wow this kid could stay in the bath forever you know my grandson lives with us and he is on the spectrum and you know my other grandson his brother you know who is also on the spectrum um you know we have a a pool and fully dressed this kid jumps into the pool and we're like, what is going on here? And, you know, it, it's it, it, this this draw to water. 
but those of us who are are with this every day, yes, we recognize that. But as you say, the outside world, they don't know that. And and the schools specifically, they are so, as you mentioned, they are so in tune to behavior and instruction and just kind of the norm the average. And so when you have a child that wanders or whatever, they, they look at that differently. They look at that as disobedience or uh, a behavioral type thing instead of a symptom. And therefore they treat it as such. And so then nah, it starts the whole thing. So you, oh my gosh, you're talking about retiring. I, I imagine you could work a hundred hours a week, uh, serving the community and instructing them and enlightening them. To all of those things, and I'm oh my gosh, I you need to duplicate yourself 50 million times because it's so important. Talk, Matt, talk about what you tell these first responders because the video that you have showing those firemen with that little guy coming out of the house, exactly, exactly what would be happening: the sensory issues, the front, the fear. T- tell us what you tell them. Sure. Well. The first thing is, although this is this is changing too, is the numbers have gotten so high. Yeah. You know, typically, typically, unless somebody has a personal connection with autism, they have no idea what right. we're talking about. You know, and as as law enforcement officers, we get training on so many things. You can be kind of jaded, and you sit there at the at the training, and you say, "What in the world do I need to know about this for?" You know, right. and so the first part of the training is is letting them know, "Hey, this affects one in sixty eight people." You know, it's increased, the numbers have increased 300% in the last 10 years. People on the spectrum are many more times likely to have contact with the police because of their behaviors that other people deem, you know, inappropriate or strange or whatever. And their eyes start to open and go, oh, my gosh, all right, you know, this needs to happen. And then as we talk about so many of the characteristics that can be prog- problematic for law enforcement, and I'll throw out a few, one of them is the, the lack of eye contact piece, which is a very hallmark kind of characteristic of individuals on the spectrum, this inability to look someone in the eye directly. Mm-hmm. In law enforcement, when we're interacting with somebody, <clears throat> we're giving them instructions, we're asking them a question. If you are not looking us in the eye, we are trained from the very first day we ever uh, get trained on law enforcement that that means you're being deceptive. That is a really critical piece of information to know that somebody with autism is not going to look you in the eye, and that's you You need to not misinterpret that because then you you take a completely different tact on the conversation. So that's critical. Uh, and then other huge things like the sensory piece, you know, the fact that you shouldn't go tapping somebody with autism on the shoulder, that that light touch can cause them to become immediately combative. That's a huge issue um, that police need to know about, EMTs need to know about, because they're going to be doing exams on a patient, you know, in a car crash, and if they handle it incorrectly, you know, they could have a real problem on their hands. So the sensory piece, we talk a lot about sensory overload, sensitivity to light, sounds, touch, all that stuff, and avoiding the overload thing. We talk a lot about processing. This is another really critical piece when interacting with a law enforcement officer. An officer may give a person a command that they need them to comply with instantly. Maybe it's dark and the person's hands aren't visible. Uh, That's not a safe situation. So an officer might say, you know, stop, let me see your hands. For people with autism and other developmental disabilities, they are not processing that command at the same speed. You know, they're a fraction of a second behind for every syllable that's spoken. And that doesn't sound like a lot when you say it like that, but when you think about a command is going to have multiple words, maybe, you know, two sentences in a row. 
of really important information, we're talking seconds behind. So the person's delaying. Now, what a police officer reads into that is you're up to something. I'm giving you a very simple command. Show me your hand. Stop. Why are you not complying? Well, that probably means you have a weapon. You know, that's the way we have to look at things to survive situations because we only have fractions of a second to respond to something. So that's where a situation could become fatal really quickly. So it's really important that officers recognize, hey, when I give somebody with autism a command, it's going to take them several seconds to even hear it and then take it in and be able to respond to me. I'm going to need to repeat commands. I'm going to need to look for some sort of sign that they've actually heard it, taken it in, and understand what I'm saying and not misinterpreting it. Um, So that's a hugely critical piece of it. Um, And we talk a lot about the social and communication issues that people with autism tend to have about taking things very literally, the language issues, not not being able to read nonverbal communications, you know, not being able to look at a situation from someone else's point of view is another big one. Uh, I remember trying to teach my son about one of the golden rules with, with law enforcement is you don't get too close to an officer. You know, we have firearms and there's a, an issue with weapon, what we call weapon retention. Many police officers are killed with their own firearms, so you don't let people get into that space. A person on the spectrum or another developmental disability, they don't get that social piece of it. You know, they'll go right up to a police officer real close. And when we try to explain to him, well, look at it from the policeman's point of view. He might think you're trying to get his gun, you know, and our kids say, what? Why would they think that? I'm just trying to look at his badge or his nameplate. You know, they don't get that because they can't put themselves in the shoes of that person to say, oh, I get it. Yeah. All right. So those are the kinds of things that that we go into a lot of detail about. Um, I talk a lot about wandering because that's a huge, huge issue. And these Mm -hmm. are life or death situations anytime somebody on the spectrum wanders. So we spend a lot of time talking about that on wandering prevention at home, in the schools. Um, And I also spend a lot of time talking about teens on the higher end of the spectrum and all the different problems that they can get into around the Internet, around relationships with females, around, you know, drug use and things like that, getting themselves into dangerous situations, getting themselves into trouble with the law. And then we talk about people on the spectrum that become victims of crime, which is huge. Um, 83% of women with a developmental disability are sexually assaulted. 83%. Again, that's not something that's on a lot of people's radar. Mm-hmm. And this population doesn't understand when they put themselves in a dangerous situation. They don't understand how to get help if something happens, how to reach out to the folks that can help them, and how to really articulate what's happened to them. And we have police officers and detectives and prosecutors that don't know how to interview somebody with a developmental disability. So a lot of these cases go unprosecuted because, oh, the victim's got a developmental disability. They're not reliable, we can't interpret what they're saying, or they're not giving me information because they're uncomfortable. So it's really critical that that information get out there to those folks, too. And then the last thing we talk about is encouraging them to create proactive programs in their communities. You know, I'm not that interested in just going and doing a training and walking away, thinking I've spit out some information. I want to know that when I leave, you guys are going to be inspired to do something about it. And we have a few different things um, that we do. One of the biggest ones is registration. Um, we have registration forms and we encourage people with autism or their family members to fill those out. And the idea is it has critical information on that form, like if the person's verbal or nonverbal, if they wander, where they go, where's the water near your house, things like that. And the idea is you bring that to your local 
first responder agency police department, and they input it into the computer system. So if a call goes out, that information is already known to the officer. So as a parent, when your child goes missing and you're panicking and you don't even know your own your own middle name because you're so upset, um, all that information would already be able to be accessed by the officers, saving tons of critical time. So that's that's the first piece of it. Another uh, piece of it is we have all kinds of free resources for parents about engaging with your schools if your child is on the spectrum, letting them know you have a child that has a wandering issue. This is where they go. You know, we have a child that melts down. This is this is how they melt down. This is what it looks like. This is the things that triggers his meltdowns, and this is how we de-escalate them in a meltdown, things like that. And the, and the last thing is we encourage schools and police and parents to interact together. I like to do trainings where all the community is together, where we have the families of people with autism, people with autism, schools, police, firefighters all in the same room, talking, having a discussion, getting this information out, and like in Maine, we've done things where we have the police come to the schools and interact with the kids one-on-one. So the police are familiarized with the people with autism and vice versa. Mm. And that way, I think we, we get to safer outcomes. Walk them through what it would feel like to be arrested, what it would be like if you're driving and you get stopped by the police, like what they need you to do and not do. There's no end to the things that you can do. Um, but those are some of the programs that we've been trying to put into place as we kind of travel around doing doing what we do. You know, I love that idea because I just uh, went to a little uh, day camp with my granddaughters. And, of course, they brought in the uh, uh, a few uh, firefighters to do a little CPR training for these little girls. These are eight, nine, nine-year-old girls. And, uh, you know, they're just as enthralled with the fire truck as the little boys are. And, and the, you've got the uniform, and there were a couple of female firefighters, and they just were enthralled with that. But... Taking it from the, uh, hey, I'm a fireman or hey, I'm a, I'm a, a, a police officer. Taking it to another level where you're introducing these people to these kids that are on the spectrum so that there is a, like you were saying, a recognition and a comfortableness that they, when they see a police officer, they, oh yeah, I, I, police officers are, are, I met Joe the, the police officer or whatever. And so there's not that fear and just giving them that background. Wow, how important would that be? And I love, I love that idea of taking them to the schools and other things. And let's just do a whole 180 here on why the police officers and the firefighters and first responders go out to the schools. It's not just, hey, look, want to, you know, no, I don't want you to honk your horn or, or do your, do your uh, siren because that's, too loud, you know, uh, and taking it to a whole different level and then registering your children. I mean, I know that might sound frightening to some people, but having that information in a system uh, and the, the wandering, talk more about the wandering. What is it about about that symptom of autism where these kids just take off? You know, what is it? Do you know, uh, you know, what is it that drives that behavior? Well, that, that's kind of the million-dollar question, but the, the way we kind of break down wandering or elopement is into two two different distinct categories. You have the goal-directed wandering, where there might be a child on the spectrum that's obsessed with a certain place. Mm. As we know, they often have these topics that they're obsessed with or places or things, so there might be a certain place that they are obsessed with going. We had a case last summer of a high-functioning in- individual with autism, which is not your typical fatal wandering. The, the typical age for a drowning 
wandering on the spectrum is going to be between like three and eight or nine. This was a 17-year-old high-functioning young man with autism in southern Maine, but he was obsessed with this particular lake that he would walk around. Again, you had the water connection, which I don't, mm-hmm. I really don't know what that's about, but that's where they go. Right. And right. he wanted to get to this particular island that was close to the shore. And to get there, he had to walk over some rocks. Well, he ended up slipping on a rock, hitting his head, and going unconscious and drowning. Uh. But the water piece was there. So the one thing that we hammer home, regardless of, the second you hear autism wandering, search water first. Search water first. That is the absolute golden rule because they can find the water in minutes. They'll drown in minutes. Whether they can swim or not, whether they're dressed appropriately or not, it's life or death. I mean, here in Maine, we have thousands upon thousands of lakes, streams, and rivers. There's water in the ocean. There's there's water everywhere. And Oh, yes. When we go to a school, what I'll do is if I'm asked to do a training at a school, we'll go on Google Maps, we'll look at the school, and then we'll kind of pan out a little bit. And then all of a sudden, as you look at this map, you see, oh, my gosh, there's a river over here. Oh, my gosh, there's a main road here. There's a railroad track. All these hazards kind of jump right out. And my experience has been the schools, their eyes get big, and they haven't thought about this. And you have to pre-plan for these things because if the kid gets out the door, it's going to be minutes, and he's going to be right in the middle of that hazard. Uh, wow. in no time flat. So you need to have the first responders come into your school, you know, form a plan and let them know, here's what we've identified as our hazards, you know, so you guys take this map, you guys know, so that you know how to deploy when a situation comes up and we're not trying to reinvent the wheel. I don't know, had you, are you familiar with that case in New York, the Avante case that happened? No, I don't okay. think so. Well, this young man, uh, his mother, he was nonverbal. Uh, individual with autism, and his mother was very concerned about him wandering from the school, had written a letter to the teacher addressing this issue and saying, please communicate this to the other people in the school. She, from what I heard, she just basically took the letter, put it in a drawer, and that information was not disseminated or shared with anyone. Um, And then the day came where he broke away from his um, ed tech or whoever he was with, and passed many people in the school that had they perhaps known they might have grabbed them, they didn't. He bolts out of one of the side doors. They had video that showed what door he went out, but nobody had the password to the video, so they weren't able to access it. Nobody called the police for over an hour. And that that is just, you know, when that's the response, and everybody thought, oh, I thought the principal was going to call, or I thought you were going to call. Oh, no, I thought you were going to call. You can't. That's not the way it's going to work, you know. And you don't wait around and search the school for an hour and then say, you know what, if we don't find him in an hour, then we'll call. No, you call 911 instantly, and if you want to search the school while that's going on, that's fine. But you've got to have a concrete plan to do this. And I guess I assumed that, that these kinds of things were happening in schools, but I found out that that wasn't. So when I go to schools, they immediately kind of sit up in their chair and they go, oh, my gosh, we got to um, – we got to figure something out. I just was at a school up in Western Maine just this week, uh, meeting with the, with the principals and the superintendents, and it was clear that they hadn't thought this through. And their school sits yeah. right on a, right on a river, fast moving river. Oh my gosh! So, and you know, I never thought about that, but you're absolutely right. You have to take into an account your environment. And um, I remember when those boys uh, went missing. Uh, you know, on their, they had taken their boat out and they were going to go fishing. And did they ever find those boys? They think they were out in your area somewhere. But that was one of the things the mother said. Other people in the other parts of the country were all, why did you let your boys take, we're surrounded by water. 
our kids grow up in water. And you're right. I mean, you have to take, you have to look at your personal environment. Do you live on a busy street? Do you, you know, whatever your deal is with your children with autism, you have to take that under consideration. And um, so important. Yeah, I wanted to mention one other thing that we're doing relative to the wandering, and then I wanted to circle back to the police and schools because it was something that occurred to me. But another audience that we have been working on is the dispatch folks in in the 911 centers because as much as we encourage the registration, the fact is a lot of parents just choose not to do it, whether they're worried about the information being Mm -hmm. out there or they just don't take the time, they don't. But every emergency call goes into a dispatcher, to a call taker. So it occurred to me, well, if they knew the critical questions to ask and they had it on their computer, then even if the person wasn't registered, if the word autism comes out, then the dispatcher will know, you know, what questions that, that are important for them to ask. And I ran into a, I became friends with a state police dispatcher here in Maine who took an interest in it. I developed a set of questions such as, is the child verbal or nonverbal? Where's the water source near your residence, pool, pond, stream, river? If Have they run off before? Where were they found? Things like that. And he input all these questions into the state police dispatch system, and five days later he called me. And he says, Matt, we had a call, I used the questions, and we found the kid right next to a pond before he uh, Wow. And I actually have the audio of that call that I use when I do my trainings. And again, it, it gets, I mean, I get chills every time I hear it because just knowing that he know, And if you've had a child that's wandered, and I know when it happened to me, even after I'd been doing this training for a while, I was completely, I had no idea what to do. I was completely frozen. So I know that if I were to call, I wouldn't remember that there's a pond in the backyard or, oh, yeah, he did run. Yeah, he did run to, you know, uh, such and such house. It's your child. You are completely in a panic. And in this particular call, when you hear the woman speak, you can just feel her anxiety coming right through the phone line, and she is not able to come up with the information, but he knew what to ask. And so then you kind of get centered and go, oh, yeah, number one pond is right down the road. And there you are, you know. So those are the kinds of things that are really, really important. You you have to, you know, you have to train a wide variety of people within the first responder community to make it work, uh, you know, the best that it can. It's a lot of work, but that's, that's kind of what you need to do to make it effective. Well, and exactly what you were saying. Now with one in 68 people, you know, being diagnosed with autism, it isn't a, a, a few and far between. It's going to be probably almost daily at some point. And, and that is, so it is something that we just need to become aware of and become educated. Um, it's just a fact of life in, the, in this day and age. And that's, um, it's sad, but true. Just, Absolutely. you know, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, I was just going to say we we were talking before the wandering about the the importance of having the kids interact with the law enforcement one on one in the school mm-hmm. setting where it's a nice calm situation, not an emergency. One of the things that I recognized that I didn't initially was that a lot of people on the spectrum and maybe other kids too, you know, they watch so much TV, they're on the computer all the time, and they believe everything that they see on there. And what they're seeing in terms of law enforcement is an inaccurate and a very negative portrayal and picture of law enforcement. Even now, we're watching these police officers, my fellow police officers, getting shot and killed on a weekly basis now. And what you see is, you know, police are bad. Police are abusing their power. Police are doing this. Police are doing that. Well, as someone that's worked alongside police for almost 30 years, I can tell you that the 
overwhelming majority of police officers are the most incredible people you would ever meet. They have, they dedicate their lives. It's not a job. It's a vocation to sacrifice themselves in an emergency situation for anybody else, regardless of race, creed, color, whatever. You know, that's right. the real deal. But people with autism, they see what's on TV and they go, oh, you know, uh, where's the part where you throw me on the hood of the car? You know, you see some outrageous videos. Yes. And then this yes. becomes your reality. So, and I've had kids with autism tell me this kind of stuff. Or maybe they had one unfortunate situation with one police officer that maybe wasn't real nice or patient with them. Then in their mind, this is the way it's always going to be every time I see somebody in uniform. But what happens when we do these meetings at the school, it's in a calm place where they're comfortable, where they have a lot of support, and they see police officers as just human beings, as just another person. And they're sitting down at a table and you know, talking to each other and just having a normal conversation. And all of a sudden they say, wow, this is different. This is not what I've seen, you know, and they enable the police. They get, we give them room to say what it's really like. Um, and so that's huge for the people on the spectrum to see that and get a different perspective. Um, and I knew that was important. The kind of neat thing about doing this, though, is the impact that it has on the first responders. You know, yes. I, I didn't anticipate how deep of an impact it would have on them to actually be able to interact with the population, recognize how different and unique they can be from one another, um, and how interesting they are with their topics of conversation, how articulate you know, and intelligent many of them are. And mm-hmm. it's really neat when we do one of those things to have the first responders say, wow, I know so much more now having actually met them because we talk about it in training and I give them examples from my son's life and our life, but to actually be able to do that and interact with a bunch of different people on the spectrum in a nice, calm environment is so good for both the first responders and the students and the kids with autism and adults, you know, whoever we can, anytime we can pair up first responders and people on the spectrum or other developmental disabilities in a routine, comfortable setting, that is huge. That is absolutely huge so that they can then see them as, this is somebody I can go to. If I do get assaulted or something bad happens, I can go to that person. That is a safe place. That is not a dangerous right. place. These are people that are in my corner. That is absolutely essential. And so that's the kind of benefits that we see from doing that kind of proactive stuff. Right. And, you know, one of the things that you mentioned, which I think is is interesting, is, you know, obviously, again, this is a spectrum and kids fall on it and, and all different levels. But one, a, a very common trait, uh, amongst these kids is a fabulous memory. And, you know, my, my, uh, you know, my grand, you could tell my grandson something just haphazardly. Hey, you know, someday we're going to go to uh, Paris, you know, he will hold you to that. So it's very much like you said we were going to Paris. I'm like, I did. Yes, you know, on June 3rd, you said we were going to Paris. I was like, oh, wow. So, but, but that memory comes in handy, like you say, if they can, rather than seeing like you, oh my gosh, the grand theft auto police officer and the reality police officer, they will also remember that and retain that information. So it's so important that we give them that truer form of reality and that that they will remember that oh no policemen are good or firefighters are good um they will help me i can turn to them and uh it's important that we get that into their into their mind so that is as you say so important and i i love i love what you what you're talking about as far as you know we we live in a society that loves drama 
and we love being victims and then we love rushing in and being the rescuers, right? So that's why reality TV is so fabulous. We just love watching the drama and then the, the, the savior that comes in and fixes everything. But the problem with that is we've taken every little thing and made it into a drama. So now, um, you know, the schools in particular are really big in the anti-bullying. And so now it's gotten to the point where we can't even touch other, you know, children. Teachers are instructed not to touch children at all because we have to be safe that nobody can be accused of anything. But on the other hand, like you said, you have these children that are on the spectrum. And I know in my particular case, I have a, a my grandson is very tactile and he's very touchy and he loves texture. And so if someone is uh, has a scarf on that's very nubby or has a pin on, like you were saying with the officer's badge, he will go up and want to, you know, grab that scarf and play with it in his hands for a little bit. Well, that freaks people out. They're like, well, mm-hmm. you know, what are you doing? Get away, get away, you know. And so now you're going to get a disciplinary action, and then you're going to get a uh, maybe even a some kind of a, you know, you could have someone call enforcement in some kind. You know, he's touched someone or inappropriately grabbed someone or something like that. And so, in so many ways, this knowledge needs to get out there to know what to look for and to not recognize something as. Uh, evil behavior, but typical behavior in this circumstance. Absolutely, and and uh, I think I mentioned at the beginning. Although we're making a lot of strides with the police, um, at least here in Maine, one of the big disconnects is with the prosecutors and the attorneys in the court system. Yes, yes. And I don't I don't know what the resistance is, but there is a real strong resistance to getting training on this. And what happens is. You know, a case comes through where an individual on the spectrum maybe maybe committed a crime or was accused of a crime, or they're a victim of a very serious crime, and they're not treated appropriately and they're not treated consistently. And what I mean by that is, you know, a 17-year-old boy with autism might be interviewed by a police officer, not really understand that he doesn't have to say anything. He wants right. to please the person. He wants to be, you know, cooperative and all that. And he may blurt out something because we all know they're very, they tend to be very honest and blunt, you know, um, yeah. but they don't have to do that and they don't have that understanding. Now, in that case, you know, many places will be perfectly happy to lock that individual up. Okay, you just committed, you just agreed that you broke into this person's uh, cabin, so you're going to jail for six months. Now, that same individual is brought to the prosecutor's office as a victim. Well, my neighbor molested me. Yeah, but they've got autism. Well, tell me about that. Well, that's not the way you can interview somebody with a developmental disability. You need to do it in a certain way. They've got to be comfortable. Mm -hmm. It's going to take a lot of time because you need to do a lot of background on that person, how what their best communication style is, what their favorite topic of conversation is so you can gain their rapport. You can't just sit them down at a prosecutor's office and say, tell me what happened. Uh, and then what happens is nothing happens to the perpetrator. So they're credible as a as a suspect, but not credible as a victim, if that makes sense. And yeah, I, yes. I, and that's not okay. I mean, you know, right. as, a just, as a justice system, we are supposed to be looking out for everyone, but we're especially supposed to be looking out for individuals that have the highest level of vulnerability. Vulnerable right. victims are people that we're supposed to be looking out for, the elderly, people that have intellectual disabilities, developmental disabilities. And that is not happening on any sort of a consistent basis. So there's a huge area that needs attention in terms of 
defense counsel, uh, prosecutors, judges, probation officers, um, anybody involved, uh, victim witness advocates, that is not an area where this information is getting to. Uh, it, it gets really frustrating when I get a call from a parent where the child's gotten in trouble, and I'll say, well, do you have an attorney? And they say, yeah. I said, well, if you give him permission, um, he can call me. I'd be happy to help him you know, any way that I can. And the attorneys never call. You know, the parents will, will beg the attorney to call. Talk to this individual. He's got information about autism and criminal justice and how it interrelates, and they never do. And I don't, ah. I don't know what that's about. Yeah. Is that pride? Is it, uh, what's the deal? I, you know, and you are so right because just even, uh, going through the custody issues, getting guardianship of our, of our grandson and then our youngest son, uh, is severely disabled. And so we, ha- you know, when he turned 21, we had to get legal guardianship of him. And so sitting in the court system and, and, you know, you're, you're there with many other people. And so you have to wait your turn to get called up to go in front of the, the judge. And, so watching the other people approach the judge and there were some many grouchy judges out there and where but you understand that they do this day in and day out people are giving them excuse after excuse after excuse for not doing what they were supposed to do not showing up not turning in their paperwork blah 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 so they get callous and so the judges just yeah yeah whatever too bad so sad you didn't turn in your paperwork whatever get out of here and so that's what happens with these kids like you say these judges are overwhelmed they're callous um they're not open to new ideas and new circumstances and that needs to change because gosh like you say these kids are these these little 3 year old kids are going to be adults someday and our our system right now is set up for the if you have one in every 68 children being diagnosed with autism, then that means those 68 children are going to you know, those one out of every 68 are going to be one out of every 68 adults. That's a lot of adults out there um, with autism. So or being on the spectrum in some way. So we are going to have to address this, you know, and I think one of the things you said, too, is um, especially for your firefighters. These, a lot of these children don't respond to their names or don't respond when they're called at all. Um, and that can be looked at, it can be two things, dangerous for one thing. You have firefighters running into a building. They're calling people, even if they know, uh, you know, hey, ma'am, what's your child's name? Oh, it's Scott. You know, hey, Scott, are you there, Scott? And Scott's not going to respond. And so that's frightening. So, um, so many different areas that, that need to be addressed. Oh, yeah. I'll give you an example, like in a court scenario where this would, would come into play. Um, let's say you have somebody on the spectrum that's been accused of a crime, and there's a there's a jury trial of some sort, and they're on the stand. And as we know, a lot of people on the spectrum display inappropriate emotions, um, you know, where you expect them to be serious. Maybe they're smiling or they're laughing when they're sad, things like that. That is pretty common. And imagine a jury that hasn't been instructed on things that they might see, or even like a delay in answering a question from an attorney. Right. And, and as a jury, you're saying, well, geez, I asked him a pretty simple question, and he's just staring into space. Why is that? And they're talking about something that he did to somebody. Maybe he assaulted somebody. And why is he smiling? So as a jury, you're thinking, oh, this guy has no remorse. He's going down. I can't wait to get in. You know, It's not okay to not educate a jury on those kinds of things um, and just – let them go through the system with no information and decisions are being made on their future with absolutely no information about about it and the things that they might see and misinterpret. Just like a, a police officer or an average citizen might misinterpret it, 
they'll misinterpret it in that setting, and it can have really dire consequences for someone. Um, yeah, you hear that all the time. You hear that on the news all the time. People will say, uh, you know, the jurors looked over and the accused, you know, didn't have any emotional reaction. And they must be non-remorseful, or like you say, they must be guilty or, or because of that. So you hear that all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know what's funny about that? That was one of the first things that I noticed in my grandson as a baby. There was just a deadpan look on his face. Um, he, he would verbally, as he got older, verbally, he could acknowledge that he was happy. But if you looked at his face, it was dead. His eyes, uh, even playing with him as a baby, uh, it was, and I remember thinking, because he was my first grandchild and this was 12 years ago. So I remember thinking, huh, that's funny. But, it, you know, he was a very verbal child, so there was no, you know, concern. But I remember thinking, that's really funny because he should be upset. Or I would expect him to, you know, his first birthday party. He's not even like excited laughing. He's kind of like, yeah, huh? How about that? There's a cake, you know? Um, so yeah, that lack of emotional response is such an important thing to be aware of. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's amazing the work, it's amazing the work that you're doing. And as I said, you need to multiply yourself a lot because, and you need to come out to, uh, Portland. <laughs> this Portland. You have to come out to this, this side of the Portland, uh, because I know there, I would love to listen to you go on for hours and hours and I would love to be in an, in an environment where you're teaching. Uh, because I think you have so many wonderful things to share with, with all of us. And, and it, there's just an awakening that needs to be done because it is a, uh, it is a phenomenon that's hitting our society that we all need to wake up and be aware of for sure. Absolutely. I'd love to come out there. And, and my wife knows very well that I can go on and on for hours. Sometimes, sometimes she says, you know, when you're talking to people about this, feel free to take a breath or come <laughs> to one anytime you're ready. Because I'll just get going, and then I remember, oh my gosh, I'm actually having a conversation. <laughs> Maybe I should stop for a second, because I just there's so much, and I always worry about, oh my gosh, what if I forget this? Because there's so many layers to this onion, you know, if you will, that uh, right. that are involved. And the more you peel it back, the more you find. And the more I've done this, and the more people find me, I, I these situations come up, and the parents call from all over the place with these horrible situations and sad situations and then you go oh my gosh that opens up a whole another problem you know so right. as, as you said as the numbers continue to increase and they don't show any signs of letting up this is going to become more and more of an issue and we just want to get the word out to to people and police and first responders that this is a really good use of time to try to get this information because we know that lives can be directly saved as a result of just having some real basic Information. It's not real complicated at all. Right, There's some right. real simple things that you can do, um, and uh, you know, to make it a safer place for the officers and for the individuals on the spectrum and other developmental disabilities. So, and it's a privilege to do it. It really is. It feels great to be able to give back. We were the recipients of some wonderful care that our son got in the early years, and and you wanna you wanna get back and be part of that community because you know what it's like to go through that, and you wanna be able to be there for someone else that's going through a situation. So it feels really great to be doing this. You know, it really does. Well, and how do you handle? Because this is a good question that I struggle with. How do you handle 
the dilemma of giving people information but then having people like for example your son is going off to college you probably have a as a parent not even as a, a police officer and then from the work that you do you probably your first instinct is probably to run to the college and to tell everyone that you think may encounter your son everything that you that we've just talked about these are things to look for these are things he might do this is don't worry if he does this and but you know just inform everyone but then there's also that that dilemma of giving people information and then having them prejudge um, an individual and then looking at everything they do. Oh, yeah, there, see? See how he's holding his fork? Obviously autistic, you know. Um, and you must have found that even as he was going through the school system in general. How do you handle that? Now, let's take off your officer. How do you handle that as a parent? As you see, your young man is going to be leaving home, but there are things that you need to tell other people about, but then there's other things where you're like, let him be himself. He's also a wonderful young man. How do you handle that? Well, and, and in our case, this has become very complicated because for the last few years, Matthew does not want, unfortunately, he just doesn't want to have anything to do with that diagnosis or anything along those lines. Right. So, you run into a problem where, you know, you have some kids that are, they run into their high school class and they say, hi, I'm Jim and I have Asperger's. You know, that is not our son. He's completely right. the opposite. I can't discuss these trainings. You know, he's horrified when I discuss this topic because somehow, even though we've told him, this is nothing that's wrong. This is just something that's different. You know, there's nothing right. wrong about it. You can you can say that all day long, but they feel different, you know, if they get yep, the label. Yep. And, he, and I need to respect that. And we've gotten to a place where, you know, yeah, I do want to tell everybody because I want to make sure they can understand certain things if they see it or hear it and, and it makes sense to them. But I have to also respect his wishes on that. And although right. I, tell, I tell him all the time, you know, I want you to be able to identify just so that you can advocate for yourself and get help when you need it. Um, he's just not there, so and I, I can't make him get there. So that, that's one yeah. of the things that, that's kind of frustrating that we're going through right now. And I know other families do too. And as your yeah. child gets to that age where they're near eighteen, you know it's not, um, you know it's not in your hands anymore. So that that's a tough yeah. for me right now. It's almost it, it's almost a, um, and I know I've talked with other parents. The higher the higher functioning they are. Uh, in a way, it's 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 more of a disability because they are aware and they they think I, I just want to fit in. I just want to be part of it. And I know in years past, I tried to sign my grandson up for just a typical summer camp, and within days, they're calling me. Yeah, get this. No way. This kid tried to drown somebody. He grabbed someone inappropriately. He grabbed the ball and pushed the kid down. So they were always kicked out. The only camp. I was able to get him into was a camp that was set up for children with disabilities. So he goes to that camp and then he comes back and his eyes are all wide. And he's saying to me, I'm not going back to that camp. They've got autistic kids there. And I'm like, well, you know, and you fit in really well. And he, but he doesn't recognize that. So even tomorrow, I mean, today we're on our way up to Seattle to do some uh, at Seattle Children's Hospital to do some more evaluations. And he's asking me, where are we going? Why are we doing this? What What is the purpose of this? And I don't really know how to respond to that because I don't want to say, uh, well, you know, you have some issues we need to address. Um, and so and then he'll start asking me, is this like that guy that you made me talk to before and and that I told him he smelled like coffee and he didn't like me after that? And I was like, no, it's not that guy, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's a 
toughie. It's it's hard. It is. It is. Yep. Yeah. But ideally, you know, you want them to identify themselves n- not to be treated different, but to be treated better with understanding. Right. You know. But right. Exactly. You know, just, yeah. Just telling people doesn't do a lot of good if they don't know what that. Why is that significant? You know, I'd, some families will say, well, okay, we're going to identify ourselves and get on the registration, but but have the police been trained? Because if not, why do I want to do that? Um, and that makes sense. You know, it, the two things kind of have to go hand in hand. The, the registration and the disclosure have to go hand in hand with properly trained first responders. So then the information that they get has some significance and they understand what the importance of it is. So those things aren't mutually exclusive. They have to kind of walk together. Right. Well, Matt, tell everyone how they can get a hold of you. I, I, hopefully there are people that are just writing down your name right now. It's like, this guy needs to come out to our, our group and talk to us. So tell us how people can get a hold of you. Sure. Well, if they get on ASET911.com, which stands for, so it's Autism Safety Education and Training. Um, so it's ASET911.com. They can get on there, learn all about the training. That video you referenced is on there. And there's also a page that has resources, tons of free resources that we've put on there for parents, for schools, for first responders, for dispatchers, for prosecutors, you name it, it's all on there. The registration form, anything you could possibly think of. And then, of course, our contact information and how to get a hold of us directly is on there. And we'd be happy to talk to anyone that just needs somebody, even if you just need somebody to talk to. Sometimes, you know, I'll get a call about a situation and it's really horrible. And I recognize that, you know, I can't fix this. But sometimes, you know, I'm humbled by the fact that, you know what, this person just needs to know that, that somebody on the other end of the line understands at a different level, at a deeper level, and that I'm being heard about this. Um, because sometimes at the end of the day, that's all we can do. We want to solve every problem, but we also just want to know, let people know that we're here if you need a ear, you know, and you're in a situation um, that you just want to share with somebody that that's okay too. Because I get a lot of calls like that where I can't fix the situation, um, oh. but I can, I can listen. That's fabulous. Thank you so much, Matt. I really enjoyed talking with you, and I hope so much that I'll have the opportunity to meet you in person and to be uh, in the audience of one of your training sessions. So give your wife uh, a big hug for me. I'm sorry we didn't have a chance to talk to Nancy. I'd love to talk to her uh, mom to mom. That would be fabulous someday. Uh, you go off to your other meeting. I know you have 50 million things that you're doing, and have a great day, and thank you so much for what you're what you're doing. Well, thank you, Renee, for everything that you're doing and for having me on, and I look forward to hopefully meeting you down the road. Exactly. All right. Bye-bye. Take care. That I, I, I know that the most beautiful thing about education is that it, 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 it is a fertilizer for more information. And listening to Matt, just it creates more questions, and then that creates more inquiry. And so I, I love what he's doing. I, I think it's a fabulous thing. If you have a child that you believe is on the spectrum, um, there are so many resources out there. Matt is one. And as he mentioned on his website, he has a list of other resources. Autism Speaks is another great resource. I hope you find the help that you need. And I hope that this show, Heaven Sent and Bent, is one of the sources that will give you some information to get you the the comfort and the help that you need. Have a great week, everyone. I've enjoyed being with you this morning, and we'll talk again next week. Bye-bye. <laughs> 